Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So, where are we going this time, Bob? K is for the King Bees. So, after leaving the Conrads in December 1963, Bowie tried to join a few bands, including the Wranglers, who appeared on the same bill as the Conrads at a show at Lewisham Town Hall. Uh, More than anything, though, he wanted to form his own band with himself as the focal point. In early 1964, he met drummer Robert Allen, guitarist Roger Bluck and bassist Dave Howard, who were working together as a trio in Fulham. So, he's not sure exactly how Bowie found them. One report suggests he placed an ad in Melody Maker. Uh, Bowie himself later said he met them in a barber shop and the first press release seems to kind of uphold this it says that before you can say short back and sides they decided to join forces the thing about bowie is that quite often he was so full of mischief that he yeah. just throw ridiculous stories in wouldn't he? so you never know what to believe really it's what a phrase that my dad used to say he said hey, if his lips are moving you know he's lying <laughs> there you yeah, go. i'm not saying that about bowie obviously <laughs> good disclaimer there mark yeah uh, named after the slim harpo song i'm a king b the king b's formed with bowie as lead singer and sax player and george underwood as fellow vocalist guitarist and harmonica player yeah, so the band rehearsed at Roger Bluck's place in Fulham and then they started playing gigs. So in, in any day now, he says that they wore jeans and T-shirts with a piratical flourish. Ooh. So we've already been in the last episode where, I think it was the last episode, where he wanted to wear stuff out of the Wild West. That's right. And now he's turning into a pirate. And there's no more corduroy jackets either, is there? No. They've so. gone. Anyway, the King Bee's set mostly consisted of blues, especially Muddy Water songs, plus a couple of Chuck Berry numbers and, inevitably, Slim Harpo's I'm a King Bee, which the Rolling Stones actually had recorded about the same time as yeah. this. And they also started playing old traditional tunes like uh, Little Liza Jane, more of which later, as learned from Huey P. Piano Smith recording. They started up at a residency at the Bricklayer's Arms on the old Kent Road. Bowie recalled later, we were a very typical Americanised London rhythm and blues outfit, quite influenced by the Downliners sect. We did a lot of pub work. A short while after forming the King Bees in March 64, Bowie wrote, this is one of these, wrote to the washing machine entrepreneur John Bloom, mm. inviting him, and this is in Bowie's words, to do for us what Brian Epstein has done for the Beatles and make another million. <laughs> oh, uh, Bloom didn't get back to Bowie, but he didn't ignore him completely. Instead, admiring his proactiveness, he uh, referred Bowie to Dick James' partner, Leslie Conn, who signed Bowie to his first personal management contract, Okay, which we have covered. We've done that, uh, But we? Dick James, isn't he the man who famously turned down the Beatles? Is that him? No, he had, uh, no it wasn't him. It was uh, Dick Rowe. Oh, yeah, I Dick Rowe was the Dick's man. Yeah. So, yeah, a couple of dicks. Uh, the King Bees ended up being booked for Bloom's wedding anniversary party. Leslie Conn, as mentioned elsewhere, signed Bowie to a five-year management deal, agreed to manage the rest of the band too, but only on a non-contractual basis. Uh, alarm bells go in there. Well, he obviously could see the star potential, couldn't he? So, in May 1964, the King Bees recorded Liza Jane under the name Davy Jones and the King Bees for the Vocalion label, part of Decca, and Bowie had been toying with the idea of releasing it under the name Tom Jones and the Jonas. <laughs> oh. And the B-side with the cover of Paul Revere and the Raiders, Louis Go Home. This is great. The press release for the single ran like this. Davy's favourite vocalists are Little Richard, Bob Dylan and John Lee Hooker. He dislikes Adam's apples and lists as his interest baseball, American football and collecting boots. So, has he done that to try and get an inroad into America? Who knows, but that is random, beyond yeah, very random. Very random. 
in the quick spin sidebar in the enemy, Derek Johnson wrote, Shouting type rhythm and blues, Louis Go Home and Forceful Shake Eliza Jane by Davy Jones and the King Bees like melody, but compensate with a terrific beat. A terrific beat. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we also get to mention in the local rag, the Bromley Times, who say he was introduced to show business at the age of 10. Right. Bowie made his TV debut in June that year on Jukebox Jury. He had to stand behind a screen with a panel of Diana Dawes, Jesse Matthews, Bunny Lewis. Uh, wasn't that the, the drag artist, Bunny Lewis? <laughs> I'm not sure. Right. And I'm Charlie sure. Drake, who voted on whether Eliza Jane would be a hit or a miss, and it was a miss. Was it? Was Charlie Drake the only one who liked yeah, it? Who yeah, yeah. Good yeah. old Charlie. Oh. In June 64, the King Bees performed on Ready Steady Go, filmed at uh, Television House in Kingsway in London. John Lee Hooker was also on the bill that night, and in the TV listings in Record Mirror, they misnamed the group as Daryl Quist and the Queen Bees, <laughs> as you would do, obviously. And do you know, I have to say, I mean, yeah, it's a wonder you didn't think, well, actually, Daryl Quist, I'll have that one yeah. as well. But anyway, Eliza Jane was released on the 5th of June 1964. It was officially produced by Leslie Conn, although George Underwood, he reckons that Glyn Johns, the future mm. legend, actually was a real producer of yeah. it, but he was engineer in the yeah. session. Uh, Bowie's involvement with the King Bees led to him being sacked from his job at uh, Neverundy Hurst, which was a commercial arts studio. Right. He was in for a short while. Three years later, he told a journalist, I was playing tenor sax with the group in the evenings, then had a bust-up at work and decided to leave the job and become a musician. Quite right. So, despite this, he did actually apply for another job with ad agency J. Walter Thompson, but was unsuccessful. Uh, desperate for a bit of cash, Leslie Conn arranged for Bowie to repaint his offices in Denmark Street, famously, alongside another of his young charges, which would be Mark Feld, later Mark Bolan. And apparently they did a really, really bad job leaving it half-finished. And then uh, Con brought in George Underwood to do it properly. Well, he's an artist. Yeah, yeah well, absolutely. And apparently uh, Mick Jagger was too, just too busy. There was one. Yeah, he couldn't make it that day, could he? In July 64, having been impressed with local R&B band the Manish Boys, who were looking for a decent frontman, Con suggested Bowie. Con drove him to the audition in Coxheath near Maidstone one Sunday afternoon. And obviously keen to keep his options open, Bowie got the job. I mean, we'll do the Manish Boys won't we, in, in M. We will. Uh, but carried on with the King Bees at the same time. This all ended in late July, however, when after a performance of Liza Jane on The Beat Room, which is the BBC Two show, right. uh, failed to muster any enthusiasm whatsoever for the single. But we thought, I've had enough of this, I'm off. It's strange, isn't it, because it did seem to get quite a lot of coverage, really, yeah. around, that, around about that time. But anyway, it didn't work. Uh, the King Bees then disbanded. By an odd quirk of fate, up in Hull, a young guitarist called Mick Ronson joined another band called... The King Bees, yeah, that exact yeah. same month. Yeah. So kismet. Um, as for Bowie's King Bees, Roger Bluck and Dave Howard went on to form the Spectrum with guitarist Colin Reese. Bluck and Reese later played with the Bully Wee Band. Yeah. Oh, aye. And meanwhile, drummer Robert Allen emigrated to the States and joined the Fabulous Minettes. And George Underwood later reflected, the King Bees weren't very good and we weren't going anywhere. <laughs> on that note. Yeah. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. K is for Krautrock. There's plenty to go out here, isn't there, Bob? OK, so uh, let's go, first of all, to Edgar Froze. We think that's how you pronounce it. From Tangerine Dream also, but a solo artist in his own right. And this is from an article by BBC programme maker Des Shaw. Uh, so he, Bowie, became very excited by the music of German electronic band Tangerine Dream, and in particular, the solo work of its founder, Edgar Froze, whose 1975 album Epsilon in Malaysian Pale deeply influenced Bowie's work on his 1976 album Station to Station. 
Bowie was particularly impressed by the randomness of the compositions and mode that he was determined to utilise more in his own music. So Bowie, in effect, followed Edgar to Berlin. Yeah, absolutely. From a different source now, this is from Andrea Jean Baker, writing in an obituary of David Bowie. Uh, Bowie told Tobias Ruther that American and British rock and roll was a toothless tiger. He was more intrigued by the radical German electronic music of the 70s by bands such as Tangerine Dream, Kraftwerk and Neu, with their monotone rhythms, endless repetition and improvised. Yeah, it goes on. Uh, in The Divided City, he became good friends with Edgar Froese, the founder member of Tangerine Dream, who helped Bowie find his apartment, a 150 Hauptstrasse Schoenberg, and eventually get off cocaine and heroin. So he helped him do oh. that as well, which I wasn't aware of. Uh, by the time he left Berlin, he was clean, Froese told me a few months before he died in January 2015. He also recommended the famed Hansa recording studio to Bowie, located near the Berlin Wall. The studio was once a Nazi ballroom. Yeah, it's obviously a crucial figure in Bowie's uh, history here. Uh, Recording at the Hansa studio, the big hall by the wall, of course, gave Bowie a sense of being on the edge. I have to put myself in those situations to produce good writing. I need the dangerous level emotionally, mentally and physically, he told Froze. So let's move on to Noy then. And it's well documented that Bowie called Michael Rother, didn't he have the band Mm. of Noy, asking him to play guitar on his next record, which would prove to be Heroes. Now, Heroes is often thought to be named after the song Hero, which is taken from the immense, wonderful album oh. Noy 75 and this is from an interview with Michael Rother from uh, The Quietus yes. so he's asked talking about David Bowie as far as I know he even called his album Heroes after your track Hero from uh, Noy 75 and Rother says I think so I didn't talk to David about that when he called me in 77 and asked me if I would join him in Berlin we were just talking about music we wanted to do together but I know from some interviews that David Bowie gave as well as from talking to Brian Eno that they were discussing all of our albums he continued David also said I think in more than one one interview that tracks like Hero and After Eight was some of his favourite music so I think it would be fair to assume that he took that as inspiration, not only from our music, but also from naming the album, and that was actually the album we would have done together if somebody hadn't tricked us. Yes, this is intriguing. So then uh, the quietest ask, what do you mean? He says, oh, you don't know the story? Well, there's some mystery about what happened in 77. For many years, I believed that David Bowie had changed his mind, which was what someone from his team had told me. David and I had discussed details about the music and instruments, the kind of things I should bring along with me. We were both very excited about that. But then someone else called me and said, I have to tell you that David's changed his mind. You don't have to come to Berlin after all. Right, so this is where the plot thickens. So that's what I believe, said Rother. I was busy with my solo career at the time. My first solo album was suddenly taking off, and I started recording my second solo album the same year so I didn't cry for a long time I was just puzzled because I thought that didn't sound like what we've been talking about but who knows it took about 20 something years until I stumbled across interviews with David Bowie where he said I invited Michael to record with me but unfortunately he turned me down Ooh, okay so rather continues says uh, my guess at what happened is that people in his team were a bit anxious sales were going down because his experimental approach to music wasn't commercial enough his fans wanted a continuation of the Ziggy era. It's so strange to me that 20 or 30 years later, his three Berlin albums are considered to be his best by many fans and critics. But at the time, it was different. Yeah, well, he, he, he's, he's thought about it, obviously, and you Clearly. would, wouldn't you? But he, he's good. He's got a cool attitude towards it. He said the sales were dropping considerably, and maybe it was decided that David Bowie would make better pop music without another German guy as inspiration on his team. It was strange, 20-something years later, to hear him tell a very different story. But it's no use crying about the fact that he 
Heroes was made without my guitar and without my input. But who knows? Maybe I would have destroyed the album. It's an intriguing, you know, talk about parallel lines, you know, here, you know, what might have happened there. But as discussed, you know, F... Robert Fripp. Yeah. I mean, uh, Robert Fripp's contribution to the album was, you know, unique and 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 imperious. Immense. And so, I mean, yeah, it would have been a different album. Whether it would have been better or worse, we will never know. Yeah, and we of course now we have to mention Kraftwerk, don't we? Which is a a major signing post for Bowie. Yep, yep. Okay, so uh, this piece was written by uh, David Bowie aficionado David Buckley. Hello, David. Uh, okay, Bob, go to it. All right. So Paul Bookmaster recalls Bowie playing him Kraftwerk's music in L.A. when the two were working on the soundtrack to The Man Who Felt to Earth, a Nick Rowe film, in the late autumn of 1975. Uh, Bookmaster says, we listened a lot to the Croftwork albums, Autobahn and Radioactivity. We also listened to some classical stuff, including Richard Strauss, uh, not also Sprach Zorastora. I was fascinated and tickled and amused by them, continues Bookmaster. We both enjoyed their records very much indeed. We kind of took them seriously, but we kind of laughed as well. Not at it but because the music had a kind of innocent quality, which was very fetching, and a deadpan humour as well. Which, obviously, that appealed to Bowie straight from the off, didn't it, that? Well, absolutely, yeah, we know Bowie's sense of humour, don't we? So, uh, Bowie's 1976 Station to Station tour confirmed the Europeanisation of his muse, known by fans as the White Light Tour. The support slot for the tour had been offered to and turned down by Kraftwerk, thus beginning a pattern of saying no, which has continued to this day. <laughs> Kraftwerk, as we will see further in the book, and you should read Strange Fascination because it's great. Yeah. Uh, he said, uh, have said no to so many ideas, to so many people, and for so long that rejection, dismissal, and moving forward only through a process of rejection is without question their guiding philosophy. I love the fact they kind of use that as a, mm-hmm. as a way forward. Yeah. So this is Wolfgang Fleur now talking. He said, it's easy to understand why they turned him down. It's the same policy that they use today, to be absolutely on their own. No mixing with enemy cultures, not enemy, inverted commas, but foreign cultures. Nothing completely influenced by other musical styles, cultures, instruments, sounds, or countries. We had to be on our own, self-referential. That was their decision. Uh, Kraftwerk had missed the chance of playing to hundreds of thousands of fans in Europe and America. It would, in all probability, have broken Kraftwerk globally. It continues, Bowie, in effect, still used Kraftwerk as tour support. As the crowds entered the arenas, among them in Detroit on March the 1st, 1976, a 17-year-old Michigan girl called Madonna Louise Sicconi. Selections from their latest record, Radioactivity, were played at concert-level volume to accompany Louis Bunnell's silent 20s classic film Un Chien Andalou, which was projected onto a screen at the rear of the stage. The sight of a scalpel slicing through an eyeball, accompanied by the eerie new music from West Germany, provided exactly the right sort of feelings of disassociation in the audience before Bowie's literally and aesthetically blinding performance. So I did go to the Wembley shows, and, uh, and at that point in time, I didn't go, oh, this is Kraftwerk, because I didn't know what it was. Oh, okay. But I'm presuming that it was played at Wembley, and I'm presuming that I heard it at that point in right, time. Right, OK. And did he kind of add projection of uh, the Brunel film uh, at the back? Yeah, yeah. 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 Wow, oh, absolutely. Right. Okay. Uh, Bowie and Iggy toured, uh, it's Iggy Pop, of course, toured America and Europe in the spring of 76, and Bowie introduced Kraftwerk and a very Kraftworkian song to his mate. Uh, the big one for me was Radioactivity, remembers Iggy Pop, of his 28-year-old self, then an almost unthinkably old 
old age for a rock star, you have to say. Uh, I'd go to sleep at night listening to Geiger Counter, Bowie had written a new song calling Sister Midnight, which, with typical Bowie largesse, he gave to Iggy. Yeah, so perhaps more than any of the other songs Bowie was writing at the time, this was the one most influenced by Kraftwerk. It was slow, jarring, a mix of freedom of funk and the robotic discipline of the synth, sound as texture rather than sound as music. Producing noise records seems pretty logical to me, Bowie told Rolling Stone. My favourite group is a German band called Kraftwerk. It plays noise music to increase productivity. I like that idea, if you have to play music. Yeah, Maxime Schmidt, the manager of Kraftwerk's French record label and friend of the band, recalled one oft-quoted meeting between Ralph Hutter and Florian Schneider and Bowie and Iggy. It was in Paris. After one of Bowie's concerts, he told writer Pascal Boussy he'd hired the uh, Lange Bleu nightclub on the Champs-Élysées for a private party. When we arrived, there was Bowie, Iggy Pop and their court, and when Ralph and Florian walked in, they received a five-minute standing ovation. <laughs> Iggy Pop was gazing devotedly at them. He completely adored them. Both he and Bowie were transfigured. Fixed. Bowie was saying to Iggy, look how they are, they're fantastic. <laughs> oh. uh, so uh, Ralph said in 1991, Bowie used to tell everyone that we were his favourite group and in the mid-70s the rock press used to hang on every word from his mouth like tablets of stone. We met him when he played Dusseldorf on one of his first European tours. He was travelling by Mercedes listening to nothing but Autobahn all the time. Great. Wolfgang claims that Bowie was even keen to record with Kraftwerk. He said he was so fanatical about it, wanted to do a record with us, to co-produce with us. We should co-produce with just him. He wanted to produce his next album with Kraftwerk. That was the reason he was in Dusseldorf sometimes. I wasn't invited to these meetings. It was Ralph's thing. Florian's thing. They are the masters of Kraftwerk. OK, and uh, it continues. In the end, finally, they decided against co-productions. And they have their reasons. We loved him, David Bowie, and he loved us. He's a very mild man. He's an educated man. He has a very good aura. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, great. Carl Bartos, of course, of Kraftwerk, however, remembers differently. He says... Yes, uh, Hutter and Schneider did meet up with Bowie and Iggy in Dusseldorf, but I can honestly say I have no recollection that a collaboration was at any time intended. Although we all worshipped Iggy Pop and David Bowie, we went to Frankfurt to see the Station to Station tour. It was so super good with the wall of neon lights. Yeah, and in a 1995 interview, Bowie denied there was ever a serious intention to record with Kraftwerk. We met a few times socially, but that was as far as it went, he said before explaining how different his own modus operandi was to theirs. My attention had been swung back to Europe with the release of Kraftwerk's Autobahn in 1974. The preponderance of electronic instruments convinced me that this was an area I had to investigate a little further. Yeah, Bowie continues here. He says, much has been made of Kraftwerk's influence on our Berlin albums, most of it lazy and Analysis, I believe. Kraftwerk's approach to music had in itself little place in my scheme. Theirs was a controlled, robotic, extremely measured series of compositions, almost a parody, a minimalism. One had the feeling that Florian and Ralph were completely in charge of their environment and that their compositions were well prepared and honed before entering the studio. My work tended to uh, be expressionist mood pieces, the protagonist, i.e. me, uh, abandoning himself to the zeitgeist with little or no control over his life. The music was spontaneous for the most part and created in the studio. Yeah, it's also said that uh, didn't um, Bowie want to replace a drum machine on uh, The Idiot, on some aspects of The Idiot anyway, mm. but uh, Iggy was going, no, this robotic thing is really, really great, and Bowie wasn't keen. He wanted to get the live drum feel. That's right. So he, Bowie, he was actually Iggy. He was yeah. sticking with the, uh, the the Kraftwerk kind of uh, uh, theory. Yeah, sure. Anyway, so uh, I like this story. This is David Bowie. I went shopping once for asparagus with Florian Schneider. 
I met the two of them, and he suggested, if you like, it's the asparagus season, and I'm going to the market to select some asparagus. Would you like to come along? And I said, yes, I would. We had a very nice time doing that. And he said, I like them very much as people, Florian in particular. Very dry, said Bowie in 1978. When I go to Dusseldorf, they take me to cake shops, and we have huge pastries. They wear their suits, a bit like Gilbert and George. <laughs> Actually, God, whatever happened to those two? I used to really like them. Random. <laughs> Easily, easily distracted, Yeah, boy. totally. So he, carry, he carries on. He says, when I came over to Europe, because it was the first tour I ever did of Europe, uh, the last time I got myself a Mercedes to drive myself around in, because I still wasn't flying at that time, and Florian saw it. He said, what a wonderful car. And I said, yes, he used to belong to some Iranian prince, and he was assassinated, and the car went on the market, and I got it for the tour. And Florian said, yeah, car always lasts longer. With him, it all has that edge, his whole cold emotion, warm emotion. I responded to that. Folk music of the factories. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. K is for Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, of course, the American film director, screenwriter and producer. Born uh, 26th of July 1928, died March the 7th 1999. Obviously, frequently cited as one of the greatest, most influential directors in cinematic history. Yep, yep. Uh, his films, mostly adaptations of novels or short stories, cover a wide range of genres uh, noted for their realism, dark humour, unique cinematography, uh, you know, immaculate set designs and evocative use of music. Yeah. I have to say, I've got to always found Kubrick's films a little bit kind of cold and forensic. There's not a lot of warmth and humanity in there, is there? I don't like 2001 A Space Odyssey. Let's move on, shall we? I think we, I might I might be leaving shortly. You don't like it? I, I saw it. I saw it probably when I was about fourteen, maybe, oh. and it just didn't connect with me at all. And I haven't been back to it. I mean, it's a good. You should probably go back to it. You know, it's so slow moving, though. I can understand not grabbing your attention <laughs> as a fourteen-year-old. A Clockwork Orange did. Well, that would do. It would do. It grabbed me right there. Uh, so uh, he was raised in the Bronx, New York City, and attended William Howard Taft High School from 1941 to 1945. Although he only received average grades, Stanley displayed a keen interest in literature, photography and film from a young age and taught himself all aspects of film production and directing after graduating from high school. After working as a photographer for Look magazine in the late 40s and early 50s, Kubrick began making short films on a shoestring budget, made his first major Hollywood film, The Killing, for United Artists in 1956, followed by two collaborations with Kirk Douglas. So the war picture, Paths of Glory, and then the, uh, well, historical epic Spartacus, 1960. His reputation as a filmmaker in Hollywood grew from there. He was approached by Marlon Brando to film what would become One-Eyed Jacks in 61, although Brando eventually decided to direct it himself. Well, we all know Spartacus. And I have seen Passive Glory, don't remember too much about it, but for me, of the three, I have to say, I absolutely adore The Killing. Yeah, it's great. It's... What a fantastic... I mean, if you don't know about it, it's about a heist at a, a racetrack mm. um, uh, with a Sterling Hayden, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. But it, it's the low-budgetness of it. That's, makes, that's what gives it its edge. It's, it's terrific. absolutely brilliant. So move on to 1968. 2001, A Space Odyssey. 1968, science fiction film produced and directed by Stanley Kubrick. It was to have a huge impression on Bowie's career and it would prove not only to be his first number one single uh, Space Oddity obviously uh, later on his first number one single 1975 the reissue uh, but it also found its place in science history Ooh. more of which later on so the screenplay was written by Stanley and Arthur C. Clarke and was partially based
based on Clark's short story, The Sentinel. Just one note on this. If you've seen uh, the film, as you have, we have, and you're slightly confused by the ending, read Arthur C. Clarke's book first, and then you can go to the film. Really? Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe okay. that's what I fell at the first hurdle. A novel also called 2001, A Space Odyssey, written concurrently with the screenplay, was published soon after the film was released. The film, which follows a voyage to Jupiter with the sentient computer HAL, after the discovery of a mysterious black monolith affecting human evolution, deals with themes of existentialism, human evolution, technology, artificial intelligence and the existence of extraterrestrial life. Whew. Well said, Bob. Uh, also, Bowie's Space Odyssey was inspired, of course, by the film itself. OK, so the main character in Bowie's track, Major Tom, is based on Kubrick's Dr David Bowman and reflects his attempts at space travel. In an interview with Bill Demain in 2003 for Performing Songwriter magazine, Bowie explained the film's inspiration. It was written because of going to see the film 2001, which I found amazing. I was out of my gourd anyway. I was very stoned when I went to see it several times and it was really a revelation to me it got the song flowing yeah okay so now this is where we kind of jump forward here to may 2013 uh, life imitating art perhaps so this is chris hadfield he's conquered space and now he's conquering the internet too a video of the canadian astronaut singing space odyssey from the international space station been zipping around the web at light speed since it was posted sunday so this is a contemporaneous uh, report the five minute clip features hadfield singing a modified version of the tune and strumming an acoustic guitar while floating through a space module more than 200 miles above the Earth. Yeah, this was so big, it wasn't was it? Huge, so by wasn't Monday it? afternoon, it had more than 1.8 million views on YouTube, 3,000 comments on Reddit, whatever that is, and was being widely shared across social networks. It went bonkers. Mm. Hadfield already was something of a social media star, with 260,000 fans on Facebook and more than 825,000 followers on Twitter. During his five months aboard the International Space Station, he'd posted numerous photos and videos of himself preparing meals, brushing his teeth and explaining how to vomit in space. I must go back and watch that because I'm interested to know how you do that. Very handy. But the elegant space oddity video, reportedly months in the making, may rocket him to a higher orbit. Hadfield's earnest voice and unique perch in space brings a moving immediacy to Bowie's verses. And when he sings, I'm floating in a most peculiar way while actually floating, it is a very, very powerful moment. Most certainly. Um, because Hadfield's vocals and guitar were recorded on the space station and mixed with supporting tracks by M. Griner, a Canadian musician who once sang back up for Bowie. Some observers are calling it the first music video made in space. So one uh, Redditor wrote, The floating guitar is really floating. It's not some computer animation or trickery. The earth turning behind him in the windows is the real deal. That's us. That's our blue dot. Not some stock image or animation. Uh, the video has none of the Hollywood fakery we're used to. Its power comes from this authenticity. And let's not forget, Bowie must have approved because he did tweet... Chris Hadfield sings Space Oddity in space. And so, uh, there you go. A thumbs up from Bowie. That's probably all Hadfield wanted in the first place. I know, he did add as well, didn't he? You'd better freaking make it safely or this video would be the biggest tearjerker on the internet. It's a good point, well put. OK, so we'll uh, move on now from 2001 A Space Oddity to what was previously mentioned, A Clockwork Orange, mm. uh, which is the work of Anthony Burgess, already covered uh, in the uh, A to Z of David Bowie. Uh, but Bowie was a fan of the book before the film was made, wasn't he? Yes. But the film itself did also have a direct effect on Bowie, particularly Ziggy and the Spiders. Uh, and this is from a uh, website pushing ahead of the dame. Yeah, so they write, Bowie and Mick Ronson saw A Clockwork Orange soon after it opened in London in mid-January 1972. And while Bowie already had written Suffragette City, Stanley Kubrick's film influenced the final track, which was 
completed in early February, as well as the imagery of the Ziggy concept. But we would open most of his Ziggy shows with the film's Moog rendition of Beethoven's Ninth. And, of course, the droog wear of Malcolm McDowell in the film and his friends inspired the Spiders from Mars stage outfit, what Bowie called in 1993 a terrorist we-are-ready-for-action look. Mm. And then he added, I like the malicious kind of malevolent, vicious quality of those four guys. Yeah, although the aspects of violence themselves didn't turn me on particularly, even the inset photographs of the inside sleeve of Ziggy owed a lot to Malcolm McDowell uh, from the poster. The sort of sinister-looking photograph somewhere between a beetle, not a beetle person, but a real beetle, and violence. Yeah, also saying that uh, Burgess' uh, NADSAT dialect in Clockwork Orange turns up in Bowie's lyric, of course, say, Droogie, don't crash here. It sure do. The A to Z of David Bowie. Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. K is for the Kinks. So the Kinks were an English rock band formed in Muswell Hill, North London, 1964, by feuding brothers Ray and Dave Davis. So the Davis brothers were born in suburban North London on Huntingdon Road, East Finchley, the youngest and only boys among their family of eight children. At home, they were immersed in a world of varied musical styles, from the music hall of their parents' generation to the jazz and early rock and roll that their older sisters enjoyed. Both Ray and his brother Dave, younger by almost three years, learned to play the guitar, and they played skiffle together and rock and roll. They also boxed together, didn't they, in the front room while the parents were out, and they used to knock seven bells out of each other. Pretty savage, yeah. Yeah. After stints of various bands, the brothers, alongside Pete Quay from McAvery, became the Kinks. Two singles were released in 1964, Long Tall Sally and you still want me but it was their third single you really got me that shot them to stardom and of course the rest is history isn't it one of the great bands aren't they there's no doubt about that so the Bowie timeline summer of 1964 Bob Solly remembered that the Manish Boys uh, did a cover version of You Really Got Me at a festival in a field in Maidstone Kent and that was a song that would resurface with Bowie's stint with the lower third in uh, early 1966 yeah get this December 1964 Davy Jones and the Manish Boys undertake a six date package tour as an unadvertised bottom of the bill act of a tour that included Gene Pitney, Bobby Shafto, Marianne Faithful. Apparently the standing joke on the tour was Bowie and Marianne Faithful were sisters, presumably because of Bowie's sort of long hair. Yeah. Right? And mid-table on the bill were the kinks. So inevitably, probably, there was a bit of socialising going on between all of the young blokes from London and by the end of the tour, Bowie and Ray Davis had struck up a firm friendship. January 65, Shell Talmy, who was a kinks producer, he showed interest in the Manish Boys. Shortly thereafter, he produced the EMI uh, parlophone single, I Pity the Fool, which, you know, as is rumoured to be the case with countless recordings, especially when it comes to the kinks, uh, involved Jimmy Page doing some session guitar stuff. Yeah, so the 19th of June 1966, Radio London Awards, Brands Hatch motor racing track, Longfield Kent, David Bowie and the Buzz perform, alongside Episode 6, which is Ian Gillen and Roger Glover, who went on to be in Deep Purple, and the Squires, which are Tom Jones' ex-backing band, at the award ceremony, which is attended by the Walker Brothers, the Small Faces and the Kinks. Wow, what an event. So in 1967, this is an interview with David Bowie in Chelsea News, and he's saying, Ray Davis is terribly underrated. People have failed to recognise his trends. After about three years ago, he used a sitar on See My Friends. He's terrific. I class Dylan in much the same category. And then, of course, you know, that's proof of that. You've got various Kink songs covered by Bowie. So we mentioned You Really Got Me in 65 and 66. Then you got Waterloo Sunset, performed with Ray Davis at Carnegie Hall in 2003. That was the Tibet uh, benefit gig. It most certainly was, yeah. And Where Have All The Good Times Gone on pinups, which I have to say is probably my favourite track on pinups. Is it? Yeah, mm. it could well be. But uh, Bowie said, I would often try to go for a more obscure song because I felt it would give me more freedom to play around with the arrangement. In that particular case, I stayed pretty close to the original, actually. Even Bowie wouldn't mess with the design classic. 
Yeah. Now we've both met Ray Davis, haven't we? You met yeah. him on the nighttime show on the uh, on the radio quite yeah. some time ago. Yeah. He's he's an interesting character. He's yeah. he, he can be spiky. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was he was a funny old night because he came in for the first half hour. Uh, or the first hour, rather, and he was really, really like uncooperative and not right. not interested at all. And and um, as I remember, there was a guitar there, but he just wouldn't play it or perform oh, really? anything. So he obviously just didn't like us. I'm fair enough. But then in the and then he left mercifully before eleven o'clock. And then around about five past eleven, um, Debbie Harry and Chris Stein turned up. And uh, and and Debbie Harris said, "Is Ray Davis still here? Is, I can't believe it. Is Ray Davis about?" And we said, "No, he's gone, thankfully." Um, and uh, and so uh, so she obviously was really keen. I don't know yeah. if she'd met him before, but by the, judging by what had gone on, the way that she said it, I don't think she had. And she was upset that he wasn't there. But in the mood that he was in, I tell you what, though, go on. He probably would have been more pleased to see Debbie Harry than he was to see me and Mark. I was just going to add that myself. I did meet him. In fact, I went for a few pints with him at his local pub in uh, North London when I was interviewing him. In well, going back about eight years now and he was great he's right. gracious and all the rest of it since then uh interviewed him a couple of times on the phone and he was spiky it was almost like that kind of lou reed situation you know where you just tell he just didn't want to talk and right. it was just very very awkward and stifled yeah you just gotta take him as he comes on the day i expect the a to z of david bowie was written and presented by rob hughes and mark riley and recorded and edited by howard knock if you'd like to review or rate this podcast well that would be much appreciated in the next episode Lionel Bart, low.